So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the flats. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, where you see the first derrick, that's the shawl well. And that's the first gusher. And that, that was, uh, everyone says it's Hugh Nixon Shaw because Hugh Nixon Shaw died in his well, and that's a more romantic story, but in actual fact, it was another guy who was a complete jerk. Last month, the Commons team got in a car and drove for three hours outside of Toronto to the town of Oil Springs, Ontario, population 700. And our first stop was a muddy field. safe area. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> What's gonna happen? <laughs> we didn't see any people, just slightly creepy statues. I thought that was a real man standing on top. No, no, that is not. They have little fake men and fake horses around. There's no real people in yeah. Oil Springs. <laughs> I haven't seen anyone. Is that town full of oil ghosts? We'd made this pilgrimage for one main reason. We wanted to smell the town where the modern world was born. When we decided to focus our new series on oil, we came across a short article on Reader's Digest that talked about the strange smell that envelops the area near Oil Springs. It started off as a joke, but eventually we became obsessed with the need to smell that same smell. And so we went. Smell it now. Mm-hmm. We smell the town. It's hard to describe the smell. 
Some people say it smells like rotten eggs, and there's certainly some of that, but it's headier than that, and earthy at the same time. And after only a few seconds, it goes right to your head. I feel a little bit uh, dizzy on, <laughs> on first gas. Now when I say that the modern world was born in Oil Springs, Ontario, I'm only being a little bit hyperbolic. That muddy field that's now full of very creepy statues is the site of North America's first ever oil well in 1858. And ever since, our fate as a country has been tied to that smelly black substance. A century and a half later, it's still the black blood that pumps through our national veins. calling us a corrupt petrostate. They're calling us the dirty old man of the climate world. I have approved pipelines that the previous government wasn't able to do. Today's day and age, there no longer exists a middle class outside of the oil class. Our house is on fire. According to the IPCC, we are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. The story of Canada is the story of oil. Today, we're the world's fifth largest oil producer. By some counts, we've got more oil in the ground than any country in the world that isn't Venezuela or Saudi Arabia. It drives our economy and divides our politics. The Albertan tar sands or oil sands or whatever you want to call them are one of the biggest industrial projects in human history and they've become the global focal point in the campaign to save us from the scourge of climate change. But it's not just Alberta. It's the refiners in Quebec and New Brunswick, the dealmakers in Toronto, the rigs off the shore of Newfoundland, the frackers in BC and Saskatchewan. When the price of a barrel goes up, so does the looning. When it goes down, the markets panic. Just think about what the last few years have given us. Alberta boomed. There's an oil boom going on right now, not in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or any of those places, but 600 miles north of Montana in Canada, Alberta. And busted. An unprecedented collapse, an oil price crisis, an economic catastrophe. Canadian oil producers are using some doom and gloom language these days to describe the state of their industry. Politicians are getting themselves arrested just to prove how much they hate pipelines. The Green Party leader Elizabeth May being arrested. She's being led away by two Mounties. Stephen Harper wanted us to be an energy superpower. We will soon take action to ensure that major energy and mining projects are not subject to unnecessary regulatory delays. That is delay merely for the sake of delay. And Neil Young hoped that we would just shut it all down. It is the ugliest environmental disaster that I, that I not only have ever seen, but that I could even comprehend. If you don't understand oil, you can't understand Canada. So in this season of Commons, we're bringing you stories about our national addiction. Over the next seven episodes, we're going to prove to you that Canada isn't just a country with an oil industry. Canada is oil. You'll hear about the religious zealot who became the country's most wanted eco-terrorist, how oil barons have captured our politics, what it means for Canada to be a petrostate at a time when we're frying the globe, and so much more.
I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. First off, we have to go back to where it all started. Oil Springs, Ontario. So this is one of six powerhouses at Fairbank Oil. This rig we call the James Rig. And this thunders along 24 hours a day, 365 days of a year. And as Charlie says, it has a, it all operates on a, a one five horsepower motor. That's Pat McGee. She and her husband, Charlie Fairbank, operate Fairbank Oil Properties. It's the oldest oil company in the world. The engine Pat is describing powers a network of perpetually moving jerker lines, a pumping system that allows one motor to steadily power small wooden oil wells all over their 600-acre property. And this was devised by Charlie's great-grandfather in 1863. And what it did was make it all very economical because they used to have a steam engine at each and every well. That was expensive. This gets all kinds of wells to share one power source. When I heard the jerker, I thought, is that the frogs out already? In the spring, you can hardly hear yourself think out here because uh, of so many frogs. (laughs) Pat and Charlie's oil farm is a place unique probably in the world. The technology they use hasn't been updated in over a century. It's the history that matters, the legacy. Mm -hmm. That's what matters. We have enough to live on. We make 24,000 barrels a year. We have, uh, when we got married, we, when we were writing our vows, we we said it would be for boom or for bust. (laughs) The sound of wood and metal slowly churning can be heard all throughout his property. It's really mesmerizing. It's a preserved pocket of, of heritage, of oil history. It's been erased elsewhere in the world, pretty much. This is a one-of-a-kind place. There's no other place that has operates as an oil field using 19th century technology. Charlie Fairbank's an oil man, but he's not what you're picturing. He's soft-spoken and grandfatherly, and has the air of an old hippie getting in touch with the land. If you come here on on a warm day when things are dry, you have steel working on steel, all these pendulums going, and you have this incredible music that's happening. It's it's just everywhere. Plus the smells. And Fairbank Oil doesn't look like an oil field. As Charlie tours us around, he points to the life-size statues that dot his property. They're all based off of his family and friends, and he talks about them as if they're the actual person. And that's my brother-in-law on top of the derrick. He's a mountain guide, and now he's an avalanche expert. But anyway, I felt he'd be, be safe there. That's, <laughs> that's my sister, Sylvia, and she, she was on the other property pointing people. And I figured she'd get pinched, so I moved her over here. She's safer. <laughs> Charlie and Pat are a direct link to that very first oil boom that kicked off our modern age. Oil has been around since time immemorial. Around what became known as oil springs, it would ooze out of the ground. Legitimately, the oil and the bitumen are coming out of the ground. You step in it. (laughs) It is sticky and tarry, and you can smell it. 
There's the very strong odor in the air. That's Christina Sidorko, a historian at the Oil Museum of Canada in Oil Springs. The first oil wells were dug here in the 1850s before anywhere else in North America. And within a few years, people were hitting gushers and it was literally raining oil. And I mean that, it quite literally rained oil for a whole week. Oil Springs boomed. Its population jumped from a small group of farmers to one of the largest settlements in pre-Confederation Canada. Charlie Fairbanks' great-grandfather was one of the men who came to Oil Springs. My great-grandfather was the largest oil producer in Canada in his day, and that was in the late 1800s. The drillers of Oil Springs became some of the most sought after in the world and went to over 80 countries, supplying the know-how that powered the Second Industrial Revolution. A full century before the Alberta oil sands were in operation, Canada was already at the center of this story. I don't know why the textbooks don't teach this. It is the major industry. This is why Canada was built. But like so many oil towns across this country, the boom in oil springs ended fast. The easy oil dried up and the men moved on. Oil springs isn't a well-known chapter in Canadian history, but it should be. The same wells that helped kickstart the most important industry in Canada are still quietly pumping today on Charlie's Fields. An industry exploded around the gum beds and gushers in this part of the country, and today it's a relic, a preserved piece of history. But it's also a working oil field that produces around 25,000 barrels a year. And where that oil ends up tells a very different story about the legacy of those first oil finds. And so to see another side of Canada's oil industry, we left Oil Springs and drove about half an hour to see where that oil ends up. I mean, it doesn't look great. (laughs) No. No, it doesn't look great. No. Yeah, Gate 71 outside the Imperial Oil Facility. And it definitely has a post-apocalyptic feel. This is the Chemical Valley. I mean, I'm no judge of these things, but it definitely looks... A lot of the facilities look either corroded or a bit rusted over. Chemical Valley is the heart of Canada's petrochemical industry. It's less than five minutes from downtown Sarnia, and as we drove in, we saw smokestacks upon smokestacks, flares burning in the sky, and kilometers of razor wire. In total, there are 57 registered polluters within a 25-kilometer radius but many of them are nestled right next to the city. I mean, it is a bit disturbing that we just, what, a block away went past a playground. You can see tanker cars over there. And ostensibly, this is where Charlie Fairbanks' oil ends up. The history of the nearby oil fields and Chemical Valley are woven together. They grew up side by side. The first refinery was built here in the late 1800s, but it was the need for synthetic rubber during World War II that really kicked off the boom. The factories provided thousands of jobs, and Chemical Valley came to be seen as such a Canadian icon that it was even briefly featured on the $10 bill. But building so much heavy industry right next to people's homes had consequences. The village of Blue Water had a francophone community that housed over 500 families of Chemical Valley workers. But the valley continued to expand, and all the families were relocated in the 1950s and 60s because of serious health concerns. 
But they weren't the only families next to all of those chemical plants. There are still children who grow up in the shadows of those smokestacks. That sound you're hearing is what the people of Amjanong First Nation hear every Monday at 12.30 p.m. It's a test siren. It also goes off when one of the plants reports a spill or release of toxic chemicals. I just knew something was bad when the alarm went off because everyone was scared. That's Vanessa Gray. She grew up in Amjanong, which is literally steps from Chemical Valley. That kind of fear is just engraved in like my family and my community because we're always in danger. Chemical emissions are common, and those alarms don't always go off. It goes off if we're lucky. Often we're not. Often we get sick before we even know something's happening. Sometimes we can't smell them. Sometimes those are the worst chemicals that we can't even detect ourselves, but they know they're releasing it. They have seasons where they can release more than others. It's the companies themselves that are in charge of calling in a spill. And the residents of Amjanong are often left in the dark. On January 11, 2013, a shell refinery leaked sour water and benzene into the air. No alarm went off, but in the nearby daycare, the children and staff smelled rotten eggs. Many of them were sent to the hospital, and because no one knew what was happening, the doctors diagnosed them with flus or colds. Here's Christine Rogers, whose daughters were affected by the leak, speaking to Vice News. She had gotten uh, the crusted eyes at that time, and her eyes were bloodshot for three days, and I had to take her to the doctor and make sure she was there were no infections. You feel like a failure. As a parent, you do everything you can to protect your children. You do everything that you can to make sure that your children are safe. And when something like that happens, it's beyond your control, and you just, you feel like you've lost control. What if it had been a bigger spill? You think you're prepared, but really you're not. Shell Canada was eventually charged by the Ministry of the Environment for the leak. They pled guilty and paid a fine. But even that level of accountability is rare. An investigation by Global News, the Toronto Star, and the National Observer found that there were more than 500 spills and leaks over a two-year period. Only four of those resulted in charges. And it's not just the acute spills people have to worry about. Cancers are common in the community. There is enough health studies to say that there are direct impacts. There are cancer rates that are higher in the community. They have found like lead in, in our bloodstreams, and they have done these little like tests, and there's enough evidence to say that there's a lot of impact and that it's an unhealthy, like unstable environment. A 2005 study found that in Amjanong, twice as many girls were being born as boys. That kind of ratio has almost never been seen before in humans. But outside of this part of Ontario, few are familiar with the devastating health consequences caused by Chemical Valley. The people of Amjanong have largely had to fight this fight alone. On a day-to-day basis, people are having to go to like treatment and like support their families through like illness that they probably won't make it through and most likely usually don't. It's impacting like 
our people on the daily and people almost shut out the idea of speaking up against industry because they're exhausted of just having to be in a very sick environment. Vanessa has been an environmental activist for years. I asked Charlie Fairbank, the oil man from earlier in the episode, about the health consequences for people next to Chemical Valley. The, the uh, problem with First Nations is, is uh, a horrendous one in, in Zarnia. That, uh, there's something very wrong with that whole operation. And I, I have no solution to that. Except that I think a higher power has to step in and find some place that is, is, makes more sense. Uh, if industry is going to exist, it should exist where <laughs> it's not hurting others. For Vanessa, this is a broader story. I grew up in a place where I couldn't even breathe. And that's not my fault. It's, it's, a, whole, it's a whole system that put my grandpa in residential school. It's a whole system that was working against me before I was even born. And part of that, like knowing that people had already like worked their whole lives against the system and have been long gone for now, and I'm still learning from those lessons that people have already learned. The story of oil in Canada isn't Charlie's story or Vanessa's story. It's both of theirs. There's ingenuity and hard work. There's all of the achievements that oil has made possible. But it's also the violent dispossession of Indigenous lands, environmental destruction, and all the people who are fighting to stop that. These stories, these histories, are interwoven. They're what makes Canada, Canada. Next time on Commons. There were 29 hours of wiretaps, 40% were faulty, and there was a well site burned in effigy with an invoice to the oil company for pain and suffering. Whoever did that Norson well site had a sense of humor. Shots fired at gas company offices. Gas well sites blown up, including one explosion set by RCMP as part of their undercover investigation. We don't believe that it is the business of authorities where we bury our dead. Hear about it all on April 16th. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This is the first episode of our new series, Crude, which will look at the wild world of Canadian oil. This episode relied on reporting done by the Price of Oil team at the Toronto Star, Global News, and the National Observer, as well as work done by Vice Canada. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.